Suppose there was someone uh, sitting on the street corner who couldn't walk. And uh, in our day and age, we probably would be uh, suspicious. We'd say, well, I know there's people who are out there to scam people and all those sorts of things. But, but let's just say that someone who genuinely could not walk. He's begging for money. He's asking for help. You see him every day as you're going to work. Let's say he shows up an hour later. He shows up in, in this church building. He's got all his stuff with him that he used to haul around while he was begging for money. What do you say to him? If your response is, get all that junk out of here, this isn't the place for that, you're disrupting our church service, this, is, this isn't how you come to church, you'd, you'd be like the Pharisees in this story. If instead you looked at him and you said, aren't you that guy? How are you walking? This is amazing. What has God done? you'd be closer to the response that this story is calling us to. In John 5, Jesus warns, make sure you have me, not religion. The first point I think we see from this story is that God works when He wants to. And if it was us, and we said that statement about one of us, then uh, it would sound like laziness or not caring or something like that, I think we would assume. But in God's case, it's not a matter of delay because he lacks motivation or delay because he doesn't care, but rather delay because God has created this precise opportunity, this specific moment to testify that Christ is the one that he has sent into the world. Just like the man that we'll see later in John 9 who's blind from birth. His blindness is not his sin or his parents' sin, but an occasion for God to be glorified when Jesus heals him and he believes and the people see the works of God. So God waits, God works when he wants to. We see, first of all, that this lame man waited 38 years to be healed in these first few verses. Jesus had been in Galilee. Now he goes back to Judea in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. At the Feast of the Jews, he goes up to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem there is a sheep gate and a pool named Bethesda. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do think that the setting is interesting. Jesus says, what have I come to do? To call the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The sheep gate's right there. Jesus in the God, in speaking through the prophet Micah, said, What does he require of you, a man, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Jesus, God says in another place, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you know what Bethesda means? It means the pool of mercy. Keep that in mind as we go through the story. You might have noticed in Paul's reading and, and in what was up on the screen that the end of verse 3 and part of verse 4 was missing. Why is that? Well, the earliest copies that we have of the book of John have the explanation in verse 7 about the man saying, there's no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. It doesn't say by whom the water is stirred, 
but it seems to be the implication that when the water is stirred, whoever gets down in the pool first is healed. Whether this was a superstition or whether this actually take pl took place is also not clarified in the story, although it seems that there was some degree of genuine healing. Otherwise, this man wouldn't have waited for so long in this place hoping for it to take, hoping for it to happen. Why then do some later copies of the book of John have this further explanation in verses 3 and 4? Probably the best explanation would be at some point someone was making marginal notations on this copy of, of the book of John. And someone who was later copying thought that they were saying, oh, this is part of the text that got left out in the last copy, and those verses get inserted. Does that mean that the verses are false? Does that mean that they are heretical? We're not saying that. We're just saying they're probably not original to the original text. Someone was trying to clarify or explain verse 7 in verses 3 and 4. So no one is stealing from God's word by putting those in brackets. It's just a reflection of trying to most accurately show what the original manuscripts had. That's not the main point of the story, though, but it was a question I felt like we should answer. What's the main point of the story? Let's get back to it. The man has waited a long time in suffering. He knew how long he had suffered, but Jesus also knew. We see that in verse 6. Jesus knew he had been a long time in that condition. How did Jesus know that he had been a long time in that condition? Because Jesus is God. The same way that we saw at the end of chapter 1. Jesus says to Nathaniel, When you were under that tree miles away, I saw you praying. Jesus knew because he is God. Jesus asked the man an obvious question. Do you want to get better? How many of you would have said no? The man said, yes, of course I want to get better, but he gives his explanation. Why then does Jesus ask him, if Jesus knows all these things about him, why does he ask him this question? I think he is helping the man to think through what he's believing and trusting in. He's testing his faith. Notice the man's response. Nobody helps me to get down in the pool. Someone always beats me in. They get healed. I don't get healed. I'm just here. It seemed like he had not entirely lost hope because he was still there 38 years later, day after day. Someone helped him to get there potentially, but no one helped him to get down into the water when the pool was stirred. But perhaps he was beginning to wonder if he was ever going to get better. Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, stand up, pick up your pallet, and walk. If you couldn't walk and someone come up, came up to you and said, stand up, it would seem like a cruel joke, wouldn't it? And yet Jesus, again, is testing his faith. And notice the power by which God works. Verse 9, immediately the man became well. Not he went to physical therapy for nine months, not he had all these surgeries and then physical therapy and then a time of recovery and, and working out and then he could walk normally. He gets up, he walks, he picks up his pallet and he goes. So there is God's power at work to miraculously heal him. There is a measure of faith on his part at work that in the moment that God gives him this strength, he stands up. He doesn't give excuses, he doesn't argue, he doesn't say this is impossible, he does it. The man was healed without delay, and he obeyed. Some look at this man and, and, and view him negatively for two reasons. One is because in verse 15, he's going to report Jesus to the Pharisees. 
which led to the Jews trying to persecute and kill Jesus. But the reality is, if Jesus wanted to avoid that, knowing all things, he could have just never told the man who he was. So I don't think that we need to fault the man for the Pharisees' response to the good news that he shares with them about Jesus' work. The other reason that people take a slightly negative view of this man is this idea in verse 14 where Jesus says, you've become well, don't sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. At, at most, what that verse may be saying is the reason for his being lame is connected to some degree of sin. Is physical suffering connected to sin? Yes, but the way it's connected to sin takes different forms. It can be connected to sin because we live in a sinful, broken world from which we, the, the curse of sin has not yet been lifted. When, when so-called accidents take place, when diseases afflict our bodies, all these sorts of things, these are almost exclusively the result of living in a sinful world rather than a specific sin that we have committed. Are there physical consequences that flow out of sinful choices? Absolutely, that's true as well. And so it seems that that might have been what was going on for this man. What could he have been doing that caused him to be lame because of some sinful thing that he did? It doesn't say, and frankly, we don't really need to know. We just need to recognize that there is a link between sin and physical suffering. But you know what the hope is for both of these situations? Physical suffering that is connected with just living in a sinful, broken world or physical suffering that is a direct result of sinful choices that we have made. You know what the hope is for both of those? Jesus deals with sin. Jesus is going to break the curse of sin and remove sickness and disease and death from this world someday. We look forward to that. Jesus can deal with sin and the consequences of it that we experience in our bodies because of sinful choices that we have made. For both of those, Jesus is the hope and Jesus is the answer. And so rather than focusing on this man and trying to speculate on what had gone on earlier in his life, what this passage calls us to do is to look to Jesus as the one in whom we have hope for dealing with sin. So God works according to his own timetable. This man waited 38 years. Notice the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees object to work being done on the Sabbath. Now, it is true that God had prohibited work on the Sabbath, and the Israelites were supposed to follow this rest on the, on the last day of the week as a sign of the covenant with God. We see this, for example, in Exodus 28 through 11, Exodus 31, 13 through 16. We looked at that when we were studying through the book of Exodus. Sabbath was supposed to be special for the Israelites, set apart to God, but here's where the Pharisees went wrong. Helping neighbor was always right and did not violate the Sabbath. How do I know this? Because... Exodus 23, 4-5 says, If your neighbor's ox falls in the ditch, help him. Pull it out. Exodus 20, verses 8-11 through 11 says, Don't work on the Sabbath. How do we know that those two things can't fight against each other? Because in the other Gospels, Jesus links them together and says, You're not going to leave your neighbor's ox in the ditch with a broken leg, are you? You're going to help him out. And God's not going to strike you dead because you violated Sabbath because you didn't actually violate the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath, when it says no work, was to cease from your regular daily activities for sustenance, to trust God to provide for you, like we saw with the manna in the book of Exodus, to focus on God as the one who is supposed to be uh, the most important in your life, uh, not to neglect your responsibility to the people around you. 
The Pharisees went far beyond what God actually required and abandoned the law for their own rules. Just a quick aside on this. What does that look like for us today? What does that look like for us today? There are all sorts of ideas that attach themselves to vaguely biblical truths in the same way that coral builds up on a shipwreck, but isn't the shipwreck itself, at least at first. We come up with all of these things that we say will please God. Sometimes it's an effort to say, well, God said, don't do this. And so then we say, well, let's also not do this because then we won't do that because we're not doing this here. And then someone says, well, but we want to do this. We don't want to do that or that, so we're going to come this, this far. We don't want to do that, and we've got these layers. Maybe we'll keep moving over here. Do you know what effectively happens when we do that? What effectively happens when we do that is we abandon the work of God for our own traditions, the Word of God for our own traditions. This is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. When they saw that man walking, they should have said, look at the work of God and believed and repented and followed Jesus. Do you know what they said instead? What I think he should be doing is more important than God's work in this instance. Did God say there were certain things they were supposed to follow? Yes. But they took what God said and they added to it 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 to the extent that they completely abandoned what God said to do. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. And they said, instead, keep these rules that we want you to follow and you will be pleasing to us, to one another. People will think well of you. Let me give you an example of what this might look like today. You go to spend time with an unbeliever. You go to his house. He's, um, he's having some beers. He's listening to ungodly music. He's swearing. And you say, well, I'm not, supposed to, I'm not supposed to be a drunk, and I shouldn't take God's name in vain, and the things that those people are saying are corrupt, and I'm not supposed to let any corrupt thing come into my mind or come out of my mouth. I'm going to abandon witnessing to this guy because other people might think that I'm doing all the bad things that he's doing because I'm spending time with him. And that would be the wrong conclusion. Spend time with lost people. Don't do the things that they do, but don't be so concerned with what will this person over here think of me because that's exactly what went on with Jesus. Jesus spent time with people who didn't know God who didn't say the right things, who didn't do the right things, who didn't live the right way, who didn't look the right way, because he was pointing them to himself as their hope. And it's easy for us as Christians to say, well, if I go here and spend time with that person in that place, they're going to think this about me, and so I'm more concerned about what people think than about doing God's work. I'm not saying get drunk and commit immorality and swear. But spend time with people who do because they need Jesus. And be less concerned about what people in the world around you think about you because you're spending time with those people and more concerned about pointing them to Jesus. 
parallels what's said in the book of James. You want to you, you, you impress the rich people? They don't care about you anyway. Most often, not always, not exclusively, but most often it is the people whose lives are a disaster who know that they need God and are most receptive to the gospel from a human standpoint anyway. But sometimes we neglect them because we're afraid that it's going to contaminate us in some way or that we're going to be, we're going to like catch sin from them. And obviously don't be foolish about it. There are certain places we as Christians shouldn't go that are devoted entirely to sinful activity. But the list of those is pretty small. Let's not let the thing that distinguishes us from unbelievers be, in the, be the fact that we only spend time with people who look like us and do all the right things and sound the right way and look the right way and all of those sorts of things. Another application of this would be the idea that we would add to Scripture things that we must do to be pleasing to God. So not just we avoid people who are sinful because it might make us look bad, but also we... We add to Scripture different things that we have to do. For the, for the Jews versus the Gentiles, it was the question of where do we worship? In the synagogue, in the temple, as small gatherings of believers? Do we have to follow all the requirements of the Old Testament law? Do we have to observe the festivals, the Feast of Booths, and the Passover, and all these other things that God required of us as Israelites? Today, I think it's things like, do we have to, for example, and I, I want to be careful here, you must meditate on Scripture. God commands you to do that. You have opportunity to read God's Word regularly. You should not evaluate the spirituality of another person because they read one verse instead of one chapter in a given day to the extent that they are fulfilling the requirement of God to meditate on His Word and to follow it and to be changed by it. And that's easy to do in, uh, in the context of... I know it was a thing uh, when I was in a Christian school. There was a, a fall retreat. I think it was my ninth grade year of high school. And they said, we're going to memorize verses from the book of James. And so I memorized all these verses from the book of James, and for me it was a point of pride that I knew the whole book of James and these other people didn't. That's completely the wrong attitude. The goal is that we would all be growing in the degree to which we are following after God. The goal is not that we are comparing ourselves to other people and setting out lists of rules and requirements to evaluate their spirituality that are beyond what the Scripture lays out for us. The same thing can be true about observing of various holidays. And again, I, I want to be careful with this because I don't think it's a waste of time for us to rehearse music for Christmas and Easter because there is an opportunity to edify one another and there is an opportunity to potentially be a good testimony to those who don't know God who might visit on those days, although the number of those is not usually a huge number. But if, if someone was absolutely convinced that they didn't want to celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday as a holiday, that they didn't want to celebrate Christmas as a holiday, 
Do you know what Romans and Corinthians says? Don't judge your brother in respect to festivals and holy days and observance of all of these rituals because those are not the things that approve you to God. If you're convinced that you need to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, do it as to the Lord. If you're convinced that you don't have to do it, then don't celebrate it as to the Lord. One is convinced that every day is as important as the next, and one is convinced that certain days are very important. Both those people can, in the same gathering of God's people, stand side by side without division, without disunity, worshiping God together as part of the same church family. Let's take it even a step further. People will argue about, do you have to observe the Sabbath? There's an article I sent you in the questions, the discussion questions for tonight that I think explains some of those things pretty well. The short answer would be no. Christians are not required to keep the Sabbath. But that doesn't mean that the significance of it has lost all importance for us. There's the passage in Hebrews that says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so there is a future rest that we are looking forward to, just as the Israelites had this regular reminder of rest for them each week. We should similarly set aside times during the week to rest, to focus on God, to meditate on who He is, and to anticipate the future rest that He holds out for us. Let's take it a step further. Do you have to meet on Sunday? It was the pattern of the early church. I don't have any plans for us to change that we meet on Sunday. And it's not just because it would be expensive to change the sign out front. That's not the main point. There is a significance to starting the week with remembering Christ and His life and death and resurrection and His ascension. There is a significance to that that I think is both historically and traditionally important. But if circumstances constrained us, that we could not meet on Sunday for some reason, or at least not on Sunday morning. Think about the early church. A, a decent percentage of them would have been slaves, doing their master's bidding probably until late into the evening. So their only opportunity to gather with God's people would potentially have been later in the evening on a Sunday. So it's not the time on the day or the place that we are gathering. It is the fact of regular assembly to do all the things that God calls us to be and do as a church. The bottom line is that instead of taking what God has said and adding all of our ideas to it, we distill, we, we see what is the essence of what God has said. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the basic core thing that God has called us to do. And so if our application of a principle of God's Word causes us to violate that core ideal then we've misunderstood Scripture or we've gone our own way. And so when the Pharisees said, God said that you should honor me, so declare all of your things as dedicated to God and let your parents go on the street when they're old and don't worry about them. Does that violate loving God and your neighbor as yourself? Yes. So was that a wrong application? Yes. So were the Pharisees wrong? Yes. The same thing is happening here. God had a desire and a concern for the purity of his worship that he expressed to the Israelites in the Old Testament. God said, if you have certain diseases like leprosy, certain, certain other things connected with that, you either can't come to the temple at all, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or at the very least, you can't serve as a priest. 
The Pharisees took those rules and those regulations and they added all these other things to it. God said, I want you not to work on the Sabbath, but to focus on me. Trust me that what you did in six days was enough and you don't need the seventh. The Pharisees came up with, I think it's 39 categories of what constitutes work. Some of the more recent rabbis have included things, from what I understand, as simple as in the old days, lighting a match or in the newer times, flipping on a light switch. We count it as work. Can't do that. Let's say you have someone who is old and you invite them over to your house. And if it's dark, they're going to fall down. And you say, well, I can't flip that light switch on because that would be work. Does that violate the principle of loving your neighbors yourself? Absolutely. And so the extra-biblical rules that were added by the Pharisees and later by other rabbis that fight against that core idea of what God said to be and do, they're false, they're wrong, don't, don't pay attention to them. Building on this idea, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The other three Gospels say this specifically. Here the focus is Jesus has the right to work on the Sabbath. Jesus has the need to do His Father's work. He says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. The Pharisees say, You can't work on the Sabbath, and you can't tell other people to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, My work takes precedence over your ideas about what Sabbath should be. Why? He's the one who has signed it. He's the one who can define it. He's the one who can say what it is and isn't. In the same way that in the other Gospels, there's this discussion about could you work on the Sabbath? And he gives them the illustration of David taking the holy bread because David starving was not what God wanted, more than God wanted no one except the priest to eat the bread uh, that was holy set aside in the temple. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. What's the Pharisees' response? They knew that Jesus claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, to specifically hear the emphasis being on the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. If Jesus says, I'm doing my Father's work, and my Father is God, Jesus is claiming to be connected with God, claiming to be God, and so now they want to kill Him. First they wanted to persecute Him because He's doing things on the Sabbath. Now they want to kill Him because of blasphemy, in their view. What was the way that he broke the Sabbath or, or, or worked on the Sabbath? He did good for another person. Reminds me of another place where he says, For which of the good things have I done that you wish to stone me? That's the reasonable question to ask of the Pharisees. For which of the good things that Jesus is doing? Here's a man who was lame and now he walks and your argument is you did it on the wrong day of the week? You didn't do it in the way that we expected you to do it, so it shouldn't have been done. You claim to be equal with God, even though all your works point to the fact that you are God, and so now we're going to try to kill you for blasphemy and persecute you for violating the Sabbath. Since God works when He wants to, your response to His work shows your faith or your lack of faith. What was the lame man's response to God's work? Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk. 
he does it. What's the Pharisee's response to God's work? You can't do it that way. You can't do it on this day. You can't do it here. Their response showed their lack of faith. The lame man's response showed his true faith. So the question for us is, do you only want to see God work in the way that you expect or desire? Or do you believe in God's work even when you see it unexpectedly? Your response to God's work brings either life or condemnation. Jesus was doing the Father's work. We see this in verses 19 through 24. Jesus said, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So the Son does what the Father does. Verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Which has echoes of chapter 1, verses 50 to 51, Nathanael's response of faith. Jesus says to Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. The fact of seeing greater works than even this lame man being healed was a sign of the Father's love for the Son and the work that He had set aside for Him to do. Verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So Jesus says, I'm doing the work that God's called me to do. I do exactly the work that God tells me to do. I do the work in the way that God wants me to do it. I do it so that you will marvel at God's work. What is it that God has the connections between Jesus, the Son, and God the Father? Gives life, issues judgment, receives honor. And then the question of response, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There are people who will say, I believe in God, but I don't, need all this. I don't need all this about Jesus. This passage says you can't have one without the other. If you're going to believe in God the Father, like the Pharisees claim to do, you have to believe in the Son whom God has sent. Jesus links those very closely in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. You can't do one without the other. They're linked together. And so the Pharisees, by rejecting the Son, verse 23, were dishonoring God who sent Jesus. Jesus now talks about this idea of life further. Life comes through the voice of the Son of God. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. This phrase, the hour is coming, is used several times in John's gospel and his epistles. We saw it in chapter 4. An hour is coming and now is when people will not worship God in this place or in that place, but in spirit and in truth. He says later, an hour is coming and now is when you will be scattered. An hour is coming and now is when the spirit will come. This phrase is used five or six times in John's writing. This idea is that there is a shift in the way things have been. An hour is coming, and in fact is already here, in which 
you must believe in me. Yes, God laid out the law which pointed to me, as we'll see later in the chapter, and you were to follow it, but now I am here. You can't say, well, we have the law, we're going to keep following the law, and we're going to ignore Jesus. Jesus says, no, there's a shift. There's a decisive point. Do you believe in me, or are you going to do something else instead of believing in me? An hour is coming, and now is. What does he say? The dead will hear and live. The Father has life in Himself. He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Uh, Your Bible may have a heading that talks about two resurrections. There is the sense of the resurrection in that we must believe in Jesus to have the resurrection. And then there is also the actual historical event in which Jesus is going to raise all who have believed in him in that final day when he returns. But the main point of it is this. The Father has life. The Son has life. If you want life, you must accept the Son and the Father. If you don't, what happens? There is judgment. Jesus turns now to this question of testimony. Jesus' words are proven true by other witnesses. So Jesus performs a miracle. The Pharisees object. Jesus says, I am equal with God. That's the point that you want to kill me for. But let me explain it to you. I am equal with God. And now let me tell you why those words, where I claim to be equal with God, let me tell you why they're true. They're true in and of themselves, but you're not going to believe them. Verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He doesn't mean that it's false. He means that it can't be verified because it's just one person making the statement. He says, there is another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. So why believe the testimony of one person? We tend not to do that. We want to hear it from more than one person. Jesus gives us a number of witnesses to the truth of what he's saying. John the Baptist testified about Jesus, verses 33 to 35. You have sent to John and he testified to the truth. Where was that? Chapter 1. Who are you? What are you doing? I'm the voice of one in the wilderness crying, make straight the way of the Lord. Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah who was to come? No, but I prepare the way for the one who is to come. End of chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Pharisees have testimony from the mouth of John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. The works of Jesus testify that His words are true. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, verse 36, testify about me that the Father has sent me, and in fact testify, verse 36, the testimony is greater than that of John the works themselves. So the fact that Jesus raises the lame man, if the testimony of John the Baptist wasn't enough, then when Jesus makes the lame man well, that should be another proof that the words that he's saying are true. So when Jesus says, I am the Son of God, you should believe it because he said it, but since you won't do that, John the Baptist said it, Jesus' works show that it's true, and furthermore, the Father who has sent me, verse 37 to 38, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. John the Baptist, Jesus works, 
God the Father. But here's the problem about them believing the testimony of God the Father. The testimony of God the Father comes through God the Son. And they don't believe God the Son. So how are they going to hear and know God the Father? And then he says, verse 39, we have this development of this idea that rejecting Jesus means you are without life. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He says, John the Baptist, the works, the miracles that I have done, the signs, the testimony of God the Father which comes through me which you've refused to believe, my own words which you've refused to believe. All right, let's go to the Scriptures. Two or three witnesses. He gives them five, two of which they refuse to listen to, but three of which they can't have any argument with because they've seen it. The raising of the lame man, the testimony of John the Baptist, the words of Scripture. He says, you search the Scripture, you devote your life to Scripture, you read the Scripture, you think that because you know all these things that you have eternal life, they testify about me. Verse 39. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. If you know what the Bible says, but you don't believe in Jesus then that knowledge is worthless. Why would you look at what God has said in the Bible and not believe in Jesus who who God has sent? Verse 41, Jesus explains why. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Why didn't they believe? Because they all gathered in a group and they said, you're okay and you're okay and you're okay and you're a great person and you're a great person and you know all these things and and they praised one another for all these public things that they did, the long prayers and the, the showy donations to charity, and all of these things. They all went around and they patted each other on the back. They had glory from one another, and they didn't care about receiving glory from God. And so when Jesus came, not like them boasting in pride, not like them looking for His own recognition, He said, forget you, we aren't going to listen to you. We're good. We have each other. We all know that we're fine. We don't need you. Jesus says, I don't have to accuse you. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus gives them five testimonies that his work is true, that his words are true, that he is God. John the Baptist, the miracles and signs that he did, the testimony of God the Father, his own words, and the Scriptures themselves. The Pharisees, even if they could argue with Jesus' own words, and even if they could argue with what God the Father said because they couldn't see it and they were blind to it, the other three were right in front of them. They interacted with John the Baptist. They saw the lame man raised. They had read the Scriptures front to back over and over and over again. They would not believe because they said we're more concerned that people around us think that we're okay 
then that we receive glory from God, then that we believe in Jesus whom God has sent. So where does that leave us? Do you rejoice when God saves people whose lives are a disaster? Or do you only want things to be neat and tidy when it comes to church? And in fact, they're not neat and tidy because all of us come from being sinners. We can make them look that way on the outside. We should rejoice when God saves people whose lives are a mess who don't know the right words to say, who don't know all of the procedures and things that we typically follow when it comes to church, we should rejoice in that. Just like the Pharisees should have rejoiced that this lame man is now in the the temple because he never got to come down to the temple and worship with them because they barred the door and said, lame people, you can't come in. He gets to worship in the temple with them and they're like, no, you need to leave. You're doing work on the Sabbath. We should rejoice when God saves people whose lives are a disaster. Secondly, are your rules about religion more important to you than love of God and neighbor? And I know that this topic's come up a lot going through the Old Testament law. And I know that it might feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but this is what this passage is saying. Here are people who loved one another's praise for doing the things that they all agreed were the important things to do, and they were willing to go to hell over it rather than live accepting Jesus and by Jesus' power, loving God with all their being and loving their neighbor as themselves. So we, we look at what God has said. Here's what you're supposed to do. And we say you can either completely reject what God has said and not do it, or you can add all these things to what God has said and not do it. And we think, well, adding all these things to what God has said and not doing it is better than being the sinner out doing all these terrible sins that we know are sins. The reality is both of them are equally bad. And in fact, this one might even be more dangerous because this person knows they're a sinner deep down and this person thinks they're okay with God. So the test of true Christianity, the test of true faith, is not, do you look good to other people? And other people say, yeah, you look good, you look good, you look good, you look good, you're a great person. The test is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you love God with all of who you are and your neighbor as yourself? That's really what it matters when when it comes down to the most basic thing. What does it matter? Love God, love your neighbors, yourself, which you can only do through God's power that comes through knowing Jesus. That requires humility. Why would the Pharisees not believe in Jesus? Because they were proud. They wanted the praise that comes from men rather than the praise that comes from God. They wanted to come to God on their own terms instead of humbling themselves and saying, this son of a carpenter whose father we don't know is the Messiah. That didn't fit their expectations. That didn't fit what their plans were for personal and political power. So they said, we're not going to follow after him. And many of them were condemned. Nicodemus, 
maybe Gamaliel, Paul. These are the few exceptions of the group of the Pharisees that God saves who turn to and humble themselves and acknowledge, I thought that I had all these things that commended me to God, but I count them as worse than rubbish and garbage and waste because they did nothing for me in getting me closer to God. What matters is Jesus and what He's done in my place. So circling back to what I said at the very beginning, the warning that I think we need to walk away from this passage with is this. Do you have Jesus or do you have religion? And people say, well, you know, religion is bad. I would agree with them. Religion is bad. And what I mean by religion is this. A system of practices and rituals and everything else that has no connection with a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, this is a dead religion, an empty hope, a false thing to trust in. And it's easy for us to pick on it being in some church other than ours. We say, well, this denomination has a dead religion, or this whatever has a dead religion. My fear especially for the kids of our church, but even for the adults, is that they grow up and they do the right things at least for a while on the outside because they know that they're supposed to and they've never really come to know Jesus as the one who gives life. You need Jesus. He gives life. Your response to his work shows whether you have life. So do you have Jesus or do you have religion? All of these witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus is true and the only way. The works of John, the words of John the Baptist, the miracles that Jesus did, Jesus' own words, the testimony of God the Father, the scriptures themselves, all of these things testify to Jesus as the only way. So let's make sure that we're following Jesus, not an empty religion. Jesus brings life. Empty religion brings death. Jesus warns, do you have me or do you have religion? Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that your word would work on our hearts and our souls this week. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.